Will you marry me? Four words asked millions of times in a thousand languages across the world. Four words that, if answered with a yes, launch relationships to a whole new level. Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly message from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I pray that you hear the invitation of the Holy Spirit as you listen to this message. As a community of faith, we want to help people hear and respond to the invitation of God to join in His mission to renew everything in Jesus. In this week's message, we look at the Lord's proposal to His people at Mount Sinai to enter into an exclusive and formal relationship with Him. In a series of short sentences, the Lord invites Israel to become His people. It is the prelude to the most significant event in Exodus today. Uh, tonight's reading comes from Exodus 19, verses 1 to 8. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what I want you to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you, to, uh, brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured, treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Then people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Well, back again. If you have your Bibles with you, a soft copy or or a digital copy, uh, can I encourage you to uh, open them to Exodus 19. We will have a bit of a look at that passage as uh, as we go along. If, uh, if this were a movie in the book of Exodus, we would be just about to enter the most important scene in the movie. Uh, as we read through the book of Exodus, we often assume that all the action has kind of already happened, right? The parting of the sea and all the plagues and the Egyptian threat finally being washed away, quite literally. And, and now we're kind of into the, well, the boring bits, right? We get into the law and what to do with various things and all that sort of stuff. And it just kind of seems to peter out, shall we say, in terms of the action. But in reality, the entire narrative has been driving to the scenes that we're about to get into. Uh, what we find here is God about to enter into a relationship with his people, a a formal, um, specific, exclusive relationship. If you you were to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses uh, first met God at the burning bush, um, at that point, the Lord said to Moses that the sign that the Lord was calling him is that they would come back and worship at this mountain. So we've known from the very beginning that they were always going to come back here. If you go back even further and go back into Genesis and look at the promises that the Lord made to Abraham, one of those promises was that Abraham's descendants, who had become a mighty nation, would ultimately become God's own people. 
And so if you've been reading the Bible from the very beginning and kind of paying attention to what God was seeking to do, you would kind of have this sense of expectation that something special and unique and almost unheard of is about to happen. God is about to enter into this relationship, a covenant relationship. And covenant relationships, it sounds like a bit of an old word, but a covenant relationship formalizes a relationship. And a good way to think about that, or a good analogy for us, is to think about this a bit like a marriage. God is about to enter into an exclusive, formal relationship with his people, similar to a marriage. Which means that chapter 19 is kind of the proposal scene. And everyone likes a good proposal, don't they? I mean, they're becoming more and more elaborate these days. I mean, the things that young people get up to, right? Uh, I just asked, right? Uh, And off we kind of went, right? She said, yes, it was a win all around, right? Uh, But this is the proposal. This is where God actually brings his people to himself and asks them in the Old Testament language, will you be my people and will you allow me to be your God, to do the things and provide the things that God's provide and for you to be known as my people? This is this kind of really quite spectacular moment. But it's more than just a historical moment in time. I, I don't want to suggest that what we're going to do is we're going to unpack God's proposal and see if it was kind of any good or not. What I want to actually consider is that this story is one that is found in Scripture, And therefore, it is a story, it is a passage, it is the Word of God that continues to echo throughout time. And what God says to Israel is what God continues to say to us tonight. And so I think it's important that we have a bit of a look at what God has to say, the way He says it, and the implications for each one of us, because they exist for us as well. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to chapter 19 of the book of Exodus. We're going to have a look starting in verse 4. This is where the Lord says to Moses, this is what I want you to say to the people. And I think it's quite significant. He begins with this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And in almost the most succinct way possible, God has given a historical background, right? I did a little bit of looking on Martha Stewart weddings about how to propose properly. You know, I don't know what I did without the internet. But, um, uh, and one of the things that they talk about in terms of the ideal proposal is giving a little bit of a history of the relationship. Well, this is God's history in one succinct sentence. You yourselves have seen he says to the Israelites, what I have done. And if you've been paying attention in the book, you also know it's not just what he has done, it's why he's done it. Because of the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, God has now done something extraordinary. He has taken a group of people who were enslaved and he has brought them out of Egypt. There wasn't a political revolution. There wasn't a military revolution. It was God's might against the might of the Egyptian gods, and the Lord wins. Not only has he brought them out of Egypt, he's provided for them. When they've been thirsty, he has provided water. When they've been hungry, he's provided bread. When they've been attacked, he has protected them. You yourselves have seen, he says, what I have done. I've brought you here. I've brought you to this mountain. Here we are. And then he summarizes the relationship that he sees in the future. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, 
And we think, ah, there it is. There it is. God and his rules. How quickly he jumps to rules and regulations and statutes and commands. And yet we need to pause here for a moment and recognize a couple of really significant things in what God has just said. First of all, I want you to recognize the order in which God has said these things. Moses did not appear in Egypt and say to the people of Israel, good news, I've met with the Lord and he is willing to rescue you. He's given me 10 commandments here and just asks that if we can obey these perfectly, then he will be willing to come and save us. That's not how the story goes, is it? God has actually rescued the people long before they have done anything deserving of rescue. You know, sometimes people wonder if there's grace in the Old Testament. There's grace in the Old Testament, and here it is. He rescues the people and brings them out and then invites them into relationship. And beyond that, because it's a relationship that he is inviting them into, it begins to make some sense of what we might talk about as rules and commands. Because every relationship that we are in has obligations, doesn't it? That's how relationships work. If there are no obligations between us, then we don't have a relationship. So the social obligations that are upon my, myself and upon you with people that we only know in passing are quite low, aren't they? I'm polite to you and I'll engage in kind of simple conversation, but there's limits to how much I can ask of you and how much you can ask of me because we don't know each other really well. The more important a relationship becomes, the more significant those obligations become. So if I have a job, if I've been given a contract for work, then there are certain obligations that make the job worth having, right? I will work certain hours and do certain tasks for a certain amount of money. And you will pay me and supervise me and train me. And those are the obligations that mean the relationship flourishes. Think about a marriage. A marriage is much the same. It's the exclusivity of a marriage. It is the willingness to share your life with one another that makes the relationship so special. And here's the great thing. When we are in a very special relationship with all of its obligations, we don't talk about them as a rule or a command or as a drag, do we? Because it is the obligations that make the relationship so special. And so all God is saying here is, you've seen what I've done. You've seen what I can do for you. You've seen my might and my power and my faithfulness. Now, will you be my people? Will you step into the obligations? Now, here's something else that we often trip up on. We, also, we assume that God immediately jumps to rules and commands, but we also assume that what God wants is perfection, and so we think about the relationship that we have with God, the vertical relationship. We think that God wants perfection. How many relationships are you in that demand that you be perfect? How many of those relationships are you still in? Because when we ask other human beings to be perfect, we are always, always, always going to be disappointed, aren't we? What's more important in a relationship? It's not perfection. It's faithfulness, isn't it? It's consistency. It's trustworthiness over time. 
And what God invites his people into is into a relationship where he asks that they be faithful to him. And we often trip up on this. We often trip up on this idea that God wants us to be perfect. And because we're not perfect and we're very aware that we're not perfect, we step back from that relationship because we think to ourselves, we're just going to disappoint God. And, it, and to some degree, we have stumbled on part of the truth. If you have your Bibles with you, have a look at what the Lord says in verse 10. Uh, Moses brings this word to the people and the people say yes. They, they, they say yes to what God has proposed. Uh, and so God is going to meet with them. And listen to the regulations that the Lord gives. Verse 10 of chapter 19. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Verse 14, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. And all of these things, right? the, 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 the perimeter around the mountain, the consecration, which is to set themselves apart and prepare themselves for God, even washing their clothes, and, and that the abstaining from sexual relations in the ancient Near East, often religion and sexuality were entangled together. And the Lord is making it very clear that that's not the kind of a spiritual exercise that is appropriate. So he's saying, separate yourselves. And we often assume that this is because they have to manage the presence of a holy God of a morally pure, utterly righteous, totally sinless God, who if he gets very close to people who are like you and me, is repelled from them like those two magnets that are the opposite polarity, right? They just can't touch. That God is completely and utterly unable to draw near to sinful people. And so we have to manage this relationship, which is horrible theology. Now there's a truth to it, isn't there? If you and I are in relationship with the Lord, then that has some obligations for us, right? About how we ought to live, about the morality and the ethics that we follow, and all of those sorts of things. But to suggest that God cannot draw near to us because of our sin misses a very important point. Because God does not mention their sinfulness. In fact, God is totally aware of their sin, isn't he? Isn't God aware of the failure of the Israelites at this point in time? I mean, if you follow the story along, surely the Lord has picked up the pattern that as soon as things go bad, they complain and grumble and question God's intentions and His faithfulness and goodness. Surely the Lord has picked up on that. And we find elsewhere in the Old Testament that the people had brought with them idols from Egypt. Surely the Lord knew that. And what does the Lord say nonetheless? I am going to come down and I'm going to enter into this relationship with you. And you do not have to be perfect. I'm asking you to be faithful. Can you be faithful? Do you see the distinction between those things? Perfection drives us from God. Because we will never make, we'll never match that. But faithfulness? Well, I can have a crack at faithfulness. I can have a crack at being a little bit more trustworthy and a little bit more consistent. I can seek to be more faithful. 
I mean, if, you, if you've ever been in a really significant relationship, you know that you're never perfect in those relationships, right? We're never perfect. We're never always patient. We're never always kind. That's the nature of relationships. But the friends that we have and the relationships that matter are those where over time we are faithful and consistent and trustworthy and kind and patient most of the time. And God invites us into that relationship. It's beautiful. And if those are the obligations for the people, will you, will you take on the obligations of, of being my people? Will you seek to be as faithful to me as you can? Then God tells them in short form what he will do. He says in verse 5, Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. You will be, for me, something that I keep. I will guard you. I will care for you. I will make sure that all the right maintenance is done at the right time so you stay shiny. I will show you off to people because I'm proud of you. You will be my treasure, not just because you are valuable in and of yourself, but because I am sentimentally attached to you. You know the difference, don't you? Anyone else have a treasure at home that's worth absolutely nothing in terms of dollar value, but is worth everything? You will be for me, the Lord says, my treasured possession. I will do whatever it takes to keep you safe, to make sure that you remain with me. This is the relationship. This is the relationship. It's a pretty good proposal so far, isn't it? But wait, there's more. Because God goes on with one last component He says, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. And again, when we hear the language of priests and we hear the language of holiness, we tend to revert to that vertical relationship with God. Right? That we're meant to be, you know, really moral and really ethical and really righteous and always do the right thing. And while there's an appropriateness to that, that's not ultimately what priests are for. Now, I realize we're Baptists, and we don't really talk about priests much. But in the ancient world, priests mediated between the people and the divine. And so part of my role, if I were a priest in the ancient world, was to share with you the words of the divine, to help you worship and live accordingly, to basically be the person who was the go-between. People, the Lord. Lord, the people. I'll leave you to it. To to broker the relationship, to make sure that you understood one another, to mediate the blessing that God can bring to people if they know how to live in relationship with him. And the people of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests, which means that they were not to be priests to one another. They were to be priests to the world. They were to be the ones who mediated. They were the ones who were to teach. They were the ones who to share the words of the Lord with the world, which goes back to God's promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. And he reinforces that when he says that you will be a holy nation. And again, we tend to get caught up on the holiness bit, as if it's only ethical. But to be holy is essentially to be set apart. And so things can also be holy. So for the Jewish people, the Sabbath day is holy. So Saturday, 
Now, Saturday is no more morally pure, ethically upright than any other day of the week, except possibly Mondays, right? But Saturday is just another day of the week. But for the Jewish people, that day has been set apart for a special purpose. In the temple, there were sacred and holy um, uh, articles, plates, and bowls, and pitchers, and, and whatnot. And, and those plates and bowls and pitchers were no more ethically pure than any other plate or bowl or pitcher. They had simply been set apart for a particular task. And the people of Israel, as a kingdom of priests, if they enter into this relationship, were to be a holy nation set apart to a particular task. And what was that task? To be an example, a living, breathing embodiment of what it looked like in real life to live in relationship with the Lord. Some of you have heard me use this example before. The people of Israel were to be a display home. They were to be the display version. You know, you go into a store and you want to buy a new phone or a new computer and you want to kind of try it out and they've got one, you know, connected to the desk so you can't steal it. The people of Israel were meant to be the display device so you could try it all out and see how it worked, that you could test all the bits and pieces. If you go to a display home, it's one thing to look at the blueprints. It's another thing to walk into a house and say, hey, our lounge would fit there. Our television would look great there. This room would be a wonderful study. You can actually see it. You can walk around in it. The people of Israel were to be a living, breathing embodiment of what it looked like to live in a relationship with God. This is what Moses brings to the people. You yourselves have seen what the Lord has done. His goodness to you, his faithfulness to you, his power displayed on your behalf. And now, if you will commit yourselves to be as faithful as you can, to the obligations of a relationship with the Lord, then you will become for him his treasured possession. And beyond that, there'll be more than a vertical relationship, but he will sweep you up in his grand plan to restore the world. You will be a kingdom of priests. Not perfect, but faithful. And a holy nation. A living, breathing embodiment of what it looks like so that people could see in real time what it looks like to live in relationship with God. Are you in? This is the question. That's a good proposal, isn't it? Well, what do the people say? Verse 7, Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord that he had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. They said, yes. This is really exciting stuff. We get all swept up with the oceans partying and stuff, but this is the real deal. Because at this point in time, the Lord has come down to a particular people and said, will you be my people? Will you allow me to be your God? And the people have said, yes. And do you, see the, do you see the parallels with this? See, this story is not just a historical story. This story is retold and retold and reflected on and reinterpreted again and again and again. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The basis of a new relationship with God. But it's not just a vertical one, is it? 
And Jesus doesn't require us to be any more perfect than God required the people of Israel to be. He invites us into faithfulness and to become more and more like him and has poured out his Holy Spirit into us so that we might actually pursue and achieve some of that now. And then he sends us out into the world in the same way. And so this story is not just the historical record of the people of Israel. This is the living, breathing word of God. And so what God says to the people of Israel, he says to each of you here tonight, you yourself have seen what I have done, how I have brought you from darkness to light, how I have conquered sin and death, how I have taken you out of despair and given you a hope. And now, if you will place your faith in me, you will be for me a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, holy nation, swept up not only in a relationship with the one true God, but sent out into the world to be a living, breathing representation of that. The people of Israel answered, we will do whatever you've commanded. What is your response tonight? What is your response tonight? Because the question has been asked. Some of you here tonight have been following Jesus for a long time. And perhaps, either because you've been scared off by perfection or you've just gotten a little bit dull over time, but you've become complacent in your relationship with the Lord. You've kind of forgotten that entering into this kind of relationship with God still has some really significant implications for you. And perhaps part of your response tonight is to say, you know what, I need to take this a little bit more seriously. Some of you have been following the Lord for a long time and perhaps the whole relationship with God thing has kind of worked out and you kind of get the whole idea of grace and you understand what it is that God has done and yet you've never, ever, ever thought seriously about the fact that God would send you to participate with what He is doing. Maybe because you've often thought you've had to be perfect. And how could God ever use people who are imperfect in his plans? Well, guess what? He always uses imperfect people in his plans. And perhaps for you, your response is to say, Okay, Lord, I will keep my eyes and my ears open and my heart soft to where you might send me this week. And I'm freaking out about it. But I'll be on the watch. And perhaps some of you have been following Jesus for a while and asking your questions and trying to figure it out. And perhaps tonight, for the very first time, the Holy Spirit has stirred something in your heart where you have heard the voice of God say to you, well, you've seen what I have done. You've asked your questions. You still have doubts. You still have fears. Those never go away. But perhaps tonight you've come to the point where Yes. For the first time, to place your faith in Jesus to the best of your ability. Yes, to the first time to say, I want to be in a relationship with the Lord. Yes, for the first time, I'll be involved in the mission that you've sent me. And maybe there's something else. Who knows how the Holy Spirit's been sweeping through your hearts tonight. But I believe He has been. So what is your response tonight? wish I could gather all the elders together and do the whole Moses thing. Well, what do you say? 
you'd all respond together. We're Baptists. We don't really do that kind of thing. So we'll have to figure that one out later. But what's your response tonight? So I want to take some time just to lead us in prayer. Lex and the team are going to join me on the platform, and in a few moments we'll take some time to respond in worship. Members of the prayer team will be down here. You know the drill. But what's your response tonight? And so just in, uh, in the midst of this prayer, I want to leave some space for you to respond. So will you join me as we pray? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you, that, um, thank you that you don't require us to be perfect, either before you will rescue us or after. Thank you that you invite us into a life of, well, relationship with you. A relationship where being uh, faithful and growing in our consistency and our trustworthiness and all of those sorts of things is, is really the most important thing. And I thank you that uh, what you invited the people of Israel into 4,000 years ago is still, by the work of your Spirit, an, an ongoing invitation to each of us. An invitation to enter into relationship with you based on grace, based on your willingness to act first. Thank you that you've invited us not only into a relationship with you, a relationship that is grounded in, in, in who you are, but also that you invite us to participate in your work. And it seems ludicrous that you'd include us in any of that sort of stuff because we're just, we're flawed and broken people with fears and doubts and questions and all sorts of stuff. And yet, your question comes to us tonight. And so I pray for each one of us, as your Spirit moves in our hearts, that you might bring us to a place of response. Whether that's a response of um, repentance, of acknowledging where perhaps we haven't taken this relationship seriously enough or where we haven't really, really considered where you might use us. A response of faith, of, of acknowledging that you're enough for us, of acknowledging that um, you, your empowerment is enough, acknowledging that your call is enough, acknowledging that perhaps for the first time to the best of our ability, we want to we peg our faith to you. Holy Spirit, whatever that response is, I pray that as we worship tonight, that you would cement that in our hearts, and that tonight this would be more than just a thought or an idea, but that this would be something that would be orchestrated and um, made real by your Spirit and profoundly, deeply, eternally affect our lives. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. This invitation of the Lord echoes through the centuries, is refracted through the person of Jesus Christ, and comes to each of us afresh and anew. What is your response to this proposal today? If this message has been helpful to you, it would mean a lot to us if you'd share it with someone else this week. And as always, we'd love to hear from you as you hear and respond to the invitation of God. You can find us on Facebook or visit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au. This series will be broadcast on ACC TV later this year, and you can follow New Horizons TV on Mondays at 10 p.m. or Thursdays at 8.30 and watch previous sermons on our website. May your eyes and ears be open and your heart soft to the invitation of the Spirit to join in God's renewing work in Jesus. God bless.